Hi, Christ Church. It is great to be here with you on this first weekend of Advent. That's an intense scene. God was the first to cry for your boy, Dr. King says to Mr. Lee. This powerful scene grips me. And I'm pretty sure that just a few years ago, it would not have gripped me like it does today. It grips me today because it invites me to imagine a different kind of God. The God described by King in that scene is a God who weeps, a God who grieves, a God in the words of Isaiah 53 who is a person of sorrows acquainted with grief. God is a God of wounds, a God of tears. And what is that God grieving about? What is that God crying over? Well, the scene imaginatively and powerfully speaks to this as well. God is crying over the suffering of his image bearers in their experience of just being human in the dark world that we inhabit. The scene captures perfectly the essence of the story of Jesus' advent. And that story is captured so poignantly in an old hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. The first line goes like this, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's what Advent is. Advent is the recognition that God came. And he, and he came into the middle of the human story. See, Advent invites us to imagine a God who in fact comes into the stories in which we are in the middle of. Stories of anxiety, of anger of sexual brokenness, of deep loss, of betrayal, of spiritual and emotional fatigue. The God of Advent, the Advent God, is a God of grief. And this, this kind of perspective is, is, the, is the only thing that makes sense, really, of, of Jesus' bizarre statements to his disciples in the first three Beatitudes in that famous sermon that Jesus gave recorded in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus announces to his disciples, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, for they will inherit the earth. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness are interrelated dispositions of the ideal follower of Jesus according to Jesus' teaching. There is deep uh, connection, resonance in these words with the lament psalms of Jewish scripture. You know, some 40% of the psalms are psalms of lament. 
And the disposition of poor in spirit, mournful and meek are kind of the the characteristics of those who sing these songs of lament. Songs like Psalm 109, perhaps one of the darker of those lament psalms. I would invite you to read that, Psalm 89. You see, Jesus sermon describes the posture of his followers as lamenters. If we're to follow the man of sorrows, we must ourselves hold sorrow, which is so countercultural, both inside and outside the church. You know, it's actually quite interesting when you consider what the word blessed actually means in this passage. Blessed are those who mourn, for example. You know, the word has the sort of the, the, the connotation of congratulations. If you know any Australians, you might have heard them say, good on ya, if something happens well. And Jesus is basically saying, congratulations, if you are one who lives out a, a disposition of mourning, of poor in spirit, of, of, of meekness. I mean, what, how can this be? What, what in the world does Jesus have in mind? As if that would somehow be a posture that we would even find attractive in the world. Well, Jesus knows that those who know the wounded God through the advent, the coming of Jesus into the world, and those who are able to grieve the evil that has been done to us and is continuing to be done to us, it it is those who can move from from a position of disorientation a position of, of feeling the, the, the weight of being human, simply just being human and, and moving into a place of new orientation, of, 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 of being able to again have faith and hope and love even in the face of the dark world that we inhabit. You see, the ability to hold sorrow And at the same time to hold joy is what Jesus is inviting us into in these words, in this sermon. It's what I call open-hearted life. And on this first weekend of Advent, I want to briefly reflect on the God of grief and the power of the gift of lament. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus, his name is Yeshua, which means God saves, but it's also Emmanuel, God with us, first chapter, verse 23. And we're, 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 we're told that, that Jesus, that God with us, has entered, lived, and fulfilled Israel's story. Jesus comes into the middle of Israel's story. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but, but the Bible's story from Genesis to Revelation is, is actually structurally in, interesting, and, and it's an invitation to consider the power of the advent. 
You know, the Bible begins with sort of a quick introduction with the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We're invited to, 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 to imagine a world without sin, uh, to be in God's image and in relationship with God unhindered. And then immediately sin and rebellion enters the world and, and it's this sort of long story that comes to a very quick end in Revelation 20 and 21 when, when God again reconciles all things to himself in a new heaven and a new earth. So you have a very brief beginning and a very brief end and this long middle. And I, and I think about that and I think, you know, that is exactly life. Our lives are lived in the middle of the story. And in that middle of the story, there are, there are deep, deep losses and betrayals and wounds, both what we ourselves have been agents in and, and what we have ourselves been objects and so the Bible story reads our story and invites us to, to embrace this idea that Jesus comes uh, as God into the middle of our story. And it's in the middle of our stories that he seeks to redeem and save. God doesn't heal us and save us from above. He actually has come into our human stories. God enters the story. The, the author becomes the actor. Let's just sit with this thought for a minute. Let's not sort of run too quickly past it because there is a marvelous irony in the story of Advent as Matthew tells it. The story of Jesus' Advent, God's coming into the world as a vulnerable infant invites us to imagine the unimaginable. The future rescuer, the future reconciler of all creation, as Paul tells us in Colossians, himself needed to be rescued. God himself needed to be rescued. <laughs> Have you ever considered that? That's what Advent invites us into. To imagine a God who was that vulnerable, that much an, uh, an experiencer of the fragility of our human experience. What does this unnoticed aspect of Advent mean? We should see in this, I think, God's love, God's mercy. In love, God identified with the suffering and the vulnerability and the fragility of the human condition. He, he not only knew it, but he lived it. He entered into the suffering. He knows how simply impossible it is just to be human. in the kind of world we live in. A world of pervasive evil and fleeting happiness. 
And God comes and he comes to save and to heal. But, but this morning, friends, what I really want you to see is that God comes to walk alongside us compassionately and kindly. God's suffering is both for us, which we're well acquainted, I think, with. But what I want you to hear in this story is God's suffering with us. Matthew's quotation of a passage in Isaiah when he comes to sort of try to capture the essence of Jesus' ministry. And again, God in the flesh living out among human beings, ministering to them. And he he draws a passage from Isaiah where Isaiah predicts a, a future coming servant over in chapter 12. It's a beautifully poetic passage. I, I won't read it all, but I just want to sort of focus on, on one key verse in this passage. Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21. The passage begins by saying that, that, that uh, Jesus is the servant whom God has chosen, whom God loves, and with whom God put his spirit upon. And then in verse 20... In the quotation of Isaiah applied to Jesus, it says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You see, God in this story of Advent comes not with contempt and accusation, but with kindness with empathy because being human in the kind of world we inhabit is itself so difficult. But does the God we imagine experience grief? Does the God we worship in a service like this suffer pain and shed tears. The story of Advent answers this with a definitive yes. And and Advent invites us to imagine that not only does does God become human and suffer on earth, but, but when he goes into heaven in his ascension, his wounds and his humanity go with him. And as the the exalted Christ, he sits at the right hand of the Father, wounded for us. The one who loves us with a gentle and patient love. Advent, the coming of God, means that there is no other God than the wounded one. God didn't leave his wounds behind. Jesus' suffering forever defines God. The God we worship is a God of wounds. And the story of Advent invites us to reassess our imagination of God. The Advent God is a God who suffers. How do you imagine God? What kind of God is in your imagination that animates your life? Is he a dispassionate, disconnected, unaffected, absent person? 
Until recently, that was largely my view, my disconnected view. It was a view that I have carried for much of my emerging adult life and into my midlife. I sort of had two opposing views of God, I, I, I guess I should admit. I had the intellectual and cognitive view over here, and then the, the, the embodied way of being view over here. My intellectual cognitive view, of course, was that God could experience sorrow. I mean, the, the, the most famous verse in the, all of the Gospels, most of us have at least heard it. If not, it's sort of been part of our, our understanding since Sunday school is that Jesus wept. And of course, I have enough theological sort of uh, 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 wisdom, and I would have had it as a child. This doesn't take a lot of education to get that if Jesus weeps, God weeps. But I never personalized it. I never asked, nor did I ever think whether or not Jesus wept for me or weeps for me. And as such, a, a... a suffering God, a wounded God, was never a, a, a image that, that, that compelled my spiritual life. It was never a controlling image for me. Now, I'm not talking about a God who grieves like a disappointed father with a long wagging fingers, sort of disappointed that I have failed him yet again. No, I, I know that God. I got plenty of that God. No. I'm talking about a God who weeps, who grieves for the way evil has deeply harmed me. The way my enemy, the enemy of all all our souls, studied me. Saw the way God had had awkwardly, yes, because I'm awkward, but beautifully, nevertheless, wired me. And the enemy noticed where I was most vulnerable and went after me. And through various means, too many to name here, the evil one cut me down and fragmented me so that I became less than human. The problem isn't that we're too human, by the way. The problem is that we're not human enough. And what I mean by that is that because of the way evil has attacked us, it has robbed us of the ability to be present, fully bodied present for those who most need us. The problem isn't that we're too human. The problem is that we haven't been redeemed to be human enough because we haven't haven't been willing to enter into the sorrow of the harm that evil has perpetrated against us. I never imagined that God grieves over the way my broken home shattered my life and sent me into a tailspin as a preteen. I never imagined that, that God grieved over the years of sexual abuse suffered by a stepbrother who preyed on a vulnerable 13-year-old adventurous boy who just was longing to be fathered 
to be noticed. I had never imagined that God was the first to cry for me. Left to myself, I had adopted a view that God wanted me just to get over my suffering, to learn from it, to look at what God was teaching me from it. And I, and I could even slap a verse on it, which is what we're prone to do. A verse like Genesis 50, 20 that says, what you meant for harm, God meant for good to the saving of many lives. I blessed that verse. But in my own thinking, that became a way of minimizing my suffering and not being willing to name just how deeply I was wounded. I never grieved. I never knew I was supposed to. No one invited me or gave me permission to grieve. Instead, I became heroic. A hero doesn't have time to grieve. There's too much to accomplish, too much to do. Besides, accomplishment is a much better friend than grief, at least it seemed to me. I mean, where does grief get us after all? Except maybe some saggy eyes and a waste of time. It didn't seem very attractive. Besides, I had vowed, perhaps not intentionally, but certainly my body had vowed never to be conquered again. I was a survivor. See, I've had a blind spot for much of my adult life. I'm not that old, but I'm coming into my middle age, and I've had a blind spot of my own experience of trauma and harm. My survival instinct forced me to choose to fight. And this instinctual sort of response caused me to minimize the harm to survive. I minimized it by running restlessly headlong towards something. And only pausing enough to catch a breath and then to pick up my pace again. This way in the world, this, this, this drive, this relentless sort of drive to something has been incredibly effective. I've accomplished a whole bunch of things, some of the things Dave mentioned. The only thing I didn't accomplish was becoming a shortstop for the New York Yankees, which would have been an amazing experience, but uh, didn't have the talent. I have a son. Perhaps he can fulfill my dream. Just kidding. But there's a cost. There's a cost to this way of being. And the question I've been pondering these last few years is, what is lost if I don't have the, the capacity to be sad? What do I lose? Carla, my amazing wife of 23 years, and my twins, Zion and Mary, have been living with a hero. Instead of kindness, I've so often only offered contempt in response to their struggles. Harsh words and impatience towards their sadness and weakness. I can't abide weakness. It gets in the way. The naked truth is I have not been able to show up for my kids and my wife in a way that would bring about their flourishing. God's spirit has been at work, though. 
And this has begun to change over the last few years. It's, it's, it's a result of the disquiet of my heart, the, the fatigue of just this constant running without sort of being able to, to rest. And it also has come because I've been invited to imagine the Advent God, the God who suffers. I've gotten curious about my, my disconnected, absent style of relating I've begun to wonder why I get angry at at the most insignificant things of life. You know, spilled drinks or the loss or left of a a baseball cap on a plane. Why why that just brings out like this this violent anger in me. While at the same time, I I, I don't have any feeling for the most significant issues in my life. Issues of betrayal, of abuse, of death. Of loss. I have no feeling towards those. That just doesn't make sense. And I've stopped. I've stopped chalking it up to just, it's my personality. Just rock hard. Don't feel too, too high or too low. I've been wondering. I've been curious why I can't feel sadness or joy. Why every accomplishment and success is just another opportunity for another accomplishment and another success. And I can't rest in the goodness of gift. The Advent God teaches us that God's mercy is animated from his own experience. God's mercy is, is, is the result of his embrace of of our human experience. And he invites us to go back into those moments and points of greatest shame in our lives to discover that he is in the center of it already. He's already traveled that road. He meets our shame with mercy. Ultimately, what I've discovered is that God's suffering and grief is what connects me to him. That's that's where the connection is. And I've also discovered if I'm willing to recognize my own harm, to name it, to lament it, to grieve it, It invites me into deep connection with others. With the ability to hold the sadness and the delight of being human in the kind of world we live in. You see, I believe that what Jesus is after in our lives, in the time between his first advent and his second one, in his coming as a child and his coming as a victorious king, in the time between the times, he invites us to become more fully human than we are. The redemption, the healing, leads us not into a thin veneer of triumphalism, but into a space of presence where we can hold at one and the same time sadness, because boy, there is sadness to be had and to be held. 
but also joy and delight. And friends, unless we're able to hold sadness, unless we're able to embrace grief, we will never have the courage to delight. Because being delighted in and delighting is dangerous. It's fraught with pain. And if we can't have a process, which I'll call lament today, if we, if we don't have a process to grieve, we will never be able to be present in the world to re- help and be a part of God's redeeming the world. But it all begins, it all begins with the question that I asked you, how do you envision God? Because how you imagine God is is inextricably linked to whether or not you will enter into a a lament. The, the, The degree to which we can imagine a God of grief is the degree to which we will enter into grief ourselves. Lament is an ancient practice that God has given to us as his people to process and to be uh, completely realistic about the kind of world we live. It is a practice in which we come with our harm and we name it with imaginative power. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a language, lament is a language that doesn't come from our heads, but comes and, and animates from our hearts. It's, a, it's an embodied poetic speech where we bring in its sort of, in its gravity, the harm. And then we wait before God with others for the gift of grief. Because grief, friends, is not something you can make happen. Grief is not a work. Grief is God's gift. If we would only put ourselves in the position of receiving it. Lament is a practice where we go back and name the harm, both personally and corporately of what evil has done and is doing. And we put ourselves in the posture of receiving God's gift of grief. Not so that we'll be remote, sort of downtrodden people, but so that ultimately we can live into the fullness that Jesus has secured in his coming. The Advent God invites us into open-hearted living, the only kind of living that will bring us into the depth of relationship with him and with others that our hearts so long for, but we're so at the same time terrified of. In a few moments, I'm going to turn it over to the campus pastors. But before I do, I want to invite you. I want to invite you into the process of naming the harm. 
And I want to invite you over the course of this Advent season to realize that the Advent God is a God of grief who who invites us into those moments, those memories of shame and invites us to name them and then to patiently wait for his gift of grief which leads to a healing that's open-hearted living. The way we're going to close the service is, I think, unusual for this church. Since I'm a, I'm a guest speaker, I'm just going to sort of take the risk. We're going to stand in a moment and we're going to uh, sing a, a worship song. And I'm going to invite you to come forward and have prayer if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. If there is a trauma, perhaps, that you have never before named. But when I started speaking, it was right there. Maybe you've never told anybody. And the Holy Spirit is inviting you to name that harm on this first weekend of Advent to live into his healing. We want to give you that opportunity this morning.